Well, it is good to be together, to worship our God together. Glad you're here this morning. Hey, I want to encourage you to find uh, John's Gospel, still the first chapter, John chapter one. We're going to be digging in there together. Very appreciative of Dave Alder uh, bringing God's word last week and, and reminding us of, uh, of the, the centrality of loving God with all of our mind and, and just even some of the re- evidences for the resurrection. And so uh, grateful for uh, that. Let me start off with uh, a picture. Some of you may be old enough to remember this, uh, uh, seeing it in person. It has been called the Miracle on Ice. February 22nd, 1980, an ice hockey game during the 1980 Winter Olympics in Lake Placid to New York. It was the game between the United States and the Soviet Union during the medal round of the, the men's hockey tournament. The Soviet Union, four-time defending gold medalist. They hadn't lost an Olympic uh, hockey game in, in the decades. Uh, they were, had won the gold medal five of the six previous Winter Olympic Games. They were heavy favorites to win once more in Lake Placid. The United States team uh, was a contrast to that, certainly not the rich history. The Soviets had veteran players with significant international experience. By contrast, the young players on the United States team coached by Herb Brooks, and hardly any of them had any National Hockey League experience. Largely, they had come from the college ranks. They were the youngest team in the entire hockey field. In fact, is they were the youngest team the U.S. national team had ever put forth in their history. And right before the Olympics started, in their last exhibition game, they had an exhibition game against the same Soviet team in Madison Square Garden on February 9th, just a couple of weeks before this game. The Americans were crushed by the Soviets 10 to 3. Now, I know hockey's not as great as big a thing here in the South as it is in other parts of the country, but 10 to 3 is a pretty significant squashing uh, in hockey there, right? And so it was just kind of kind of this expected that the Soviets were going to continue to roll until that night. And that night, with chance going on, the United States team upset the, the mighty Soviets four to three. The victory became one of the most iconic moments in the games and in U.S. sports history. Equally well known was the television call by Al Michaels then of ABC as the seconds ticked down. He declared, do you believe in miracles? And the word was yes. Sports Illustrated in 1999 named the miracle on ice the top sports moment of the 20th century. As part of its centennial celebration in 2008, the International Ice Hockey Federation named the miracle on ice as the best international ice hockey story of the past 100 years. An unlikely bunch of no-names taking on the mighty Soviet hockey dynasty and defeating them. But as I thought about that, I remembered almost 2,000 years ago when Jesus was putting together a group who would catalyze a movement, who would be called to a mission to, in the words of their critics, turn the world upside down. 
But when you think about the folks that Jesus called to himself, it, it wasn't the ones that maybe we would have expected. It was quite the unlikely bunch, as unlikely as this young, inexperienced group of hockey players defeating the Soviets. How much more this group of disciples, followers that Jesus called to himself to be those that would be catalytic in this movement that even today, 2,000 years later, is continuing to change lives and change the world. And I think we can learn something about Jesus' call to some of those early disciples and particularly what it means to our call to follow him And so what I want us to do, I want us to look here at this this last uh, verses of chapter one, and I want us to see him kind of call four sets, if you will, four individuals, more than four, but uh, sets of individuals. And and I want us to, to learn something from Jesus' call to each of these folks. And, and we'll walk through it in, in kind of a similar fashion. So let me start with the first two. The first two that we encounter, beginning in verse 35, are Andrew and John. Chapter 1, verse 35. The next day, again, John, this is John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. And one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Now, I've already said this is Andrew and John. So the first question is, how do we know it's Andrew and John? Well, verse 40 tells us that one of them was Andrew, but we're never told specifically that the other one was John. But what most commentators feel pretty confident it was John because throughout John's gospel, he never names himself. When he is referring to himself, he usually says things like that disciple or, or, or the one whom Jesus loved, uh, but he never uses his uh, specific name of John. So most folks feel like this was Andrew and John. Now, as we look at these folks, as we walk through, I, I want to kind of put it in some uh, perspective. I want to talk about their personality, the evangelistic method that was used, a barrier they had to come, and, and God's unique call, Jesus' unique call to each of them. See, the ancient Greeks had kind of an understanding of personality. They had a model that there are four basic different personality types. And actually, that model is still in use a lot today. And and so we're going to kind of look at that. And so as we look at these different folks, we'll, we'll talk about their personality. And if you think about Andrew and John, from what we know in Scripture, their personality, they tended to be people centered. They tended to be people-centered. The ancient Greeks would have used the word sanguine, that they were sanguine. If you are familiar, some of you may have taken in your your work environments a DISC personality profile. Uh, They would have been a high I. They would have been inspiring. They would have been interactive. These are the folks that, that connect with and relate to and even thrive on connection with people. 
But here's the method. How, what method, what evangelistic method did God use? The method was the preacher's message. It was a preacher's message. So they are listening to John the Baptist, and John the Baptist makes this declaration. Behold the Lamb of God. He pointed them in his proclamation to Jesus. And perhaps some of your all story is like that. Perhaps you say, you know, I was, I was in a setting, I was in a service, or, or maybe I was in a, on a college campus, or, or maybe a youth camp, or whatever it was, and there was this message proclaimed, and in that moment, God opened my heart, opened my mind to become a follower of Jesus Christ. He still uses the proclaimed message today. But there's usually a barrier that we all have to overcome as we come to Jesus. And for these guys, at least part of the barrier would have been tradition. It would have been their their Jewish tradition that certainly wouldn't have thought Jesus and and how he looked and was acting and his his unfolding revelation of Messiah was what they were expecting, but also their more recent tradition. They were listening to John the Baptist. They were connected to John the Baptist. And I want you to see something very significant here. They had to leave their mentor, John the Baptist, to find their master. They had to be willing to leave their mentor to find their master. Now, I want to pause there a moment because for some of us, to follow Jesus means we're going to have to leave some things behind. To follow Jesus, we may have to leave even some very good things behind. Some relationships may have to change. Some traditions, maybe the way we were raised, we grew up, our our social circle, all of those things may have to change as we follow Jesus. And sometimes our tradition, whether that's a religious tradition or irreligious tradition, whether it's a social tradition or a relational tradition or whatever it may be, sometimes our traditions can become a barrier to us following Jesus Christ. They had to leave a mentor. Some of you may have to go beyond somebody that God's actually used powerfully in your life to truly follow Jesus. And that becomes a really hard challenge sometimes. Jesus' call to them was in line with their personality. He called them to a relationship. He starts a relationship. (laughs) <laughs> the, the, the preacher had pointed him that way, but then they asked, where are you staying? He says, come and see. Basically, he says, come and hang out for a while, right? Come and hang out. Just see. <laughs> see for yourself. Let, just begin to relate to me and see what you think. And God still uses that today. God still uses that to to invite us to to relate to Jesus Christ, but also uses that as as a bridge to bring other people to Jesus Christ. You may say, well, I'm not a preacher who's gonna stand up and proclaim a message, but you can invite people into a relationship, a relationship with you that might serve as a relational bridge to a relationship with Jesus Christ. 
Andrew and John, these people-centered sanguines, uh, God invited into this relationship. They came, they hung out with him, uh, and they began to follow him. The next calling that we find is through the life of Peter. Through the life of Peter, we already read verse 40, which connects Andrew to uh, who we now know as Simon Peter. He was Simon Peter's brother. Verse 41, he first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. John is translating a lot of these words from, from Aramaic, like Cephas, to Peter, so a Greek-speaking audience could understand our Messiah to Christ. So when we come to Peter, we have an entirely different personality. For Peter, his personality is more purpose-centered. The Greeks would have said he is choleric, right? Uh, he is, uh, in the disc personality profile that's still used today, he would be dominant. He would be direct. Uh, he, he, some even church historians feel like maybe he might have even been kind of physically a, a rather strong and maybe even imposing, intimidating figure along the way. And so you have this, this personality that's very, very different from Andrew and John. You have this dominant purpose-centered. Let's, let's make it happen. Let's, let's get after the business. Let's, I'm going to be direct. I'm, gonna be, I'm not going to be always sensitive to people's feelings. I'm gonna, it's going to be moving forward, right? And some of you can relate. That's, that's maybe your personality. But notice the evangelistic method, and that was personal evangelism. Andrew, he went to his brother and said, hey, we think we're on to something here. We have found the Messiah. Let me tell you about my personal experience. This is what I have discovered personally. And that's a method that, again, is maybe some of your story. Maybe some of your story that you had somebody in your life who came up alongside you and they said, let me tell you my story. Let me tell you what I have discovered. Let me tell you about this relationship that I have that is now changing my life. And personal evangelism is still something that God uses. But I want you to notice something about Andrew here. I think it's very, very significant. Andrew did not let the size of Peter's shadow cast a shadow over his heart. And you know, when you have a sibling that's big and bold and direct and, and dominant, sometimes that casts a pretty big shadow, right? And sometimes we can maybe shy away from that, particularly if that's not our personality. In fact, is some of you probably have some of those people in your life, whether it's somebody you're related to or not, and they're a very strong personality. They're dominant, they're direct. At times, you probably maybe feel like they're overbearing. And sometimes those folks are intimidating to us, aren't they? And because they're intimidating, sometimes it's kind of like, I don't know if they would be open to my approach. I don't know if they'll hear this message from me. I'm not sure I can bring this up to them. And yet Andrew, 
Andrew let the love he had for his brother and the love of Christ compel him to push past those barriers, to push past those barriers so that he could try to bring his brother to Jesus. And if you follow Andrew throughout the scripture, you find that that's kind of his, his mode of operating, right? I mean, that's what he does. He was always bringing people to Jesus. Here, it's his brother, Simon Peter. A little later in John's gospel, chapter six, there's a boy with loaves and fishes. Who brings him to Jesus? It's Andrew. Andrew, this people person, this connector who connects with this little boy and then connects him to Jesus. A little later on in chapter 12, there are these Greeks who want to see Jesus. They've heard about him. Who is the one who brings them? The people person, the connector. Andrew brings these Greeks to meet Jesus. Some of you, God has wired that way. You are a relator. You are, you are a connector. You are a, a people person. I mean, you just, you just kind of do, that's who you are. You don't, you don't understand why everybody else isn't that way because maybe you feel like I've always been that way. God wants to use that. God wants to use that relational bridge to bring people to Jesus. But for Peter personally, and for many of us, a great barrier in following Christ is pride. Hey, if you're dominant, if you're direct, if you're used to getting your way, if you're used to winning, if you're used to making it happen, if you're used to that kind of like I pull myself up by my own bootstraps and all that, it's kind of hard to come to a point to say, I need. I need a savior. I need forgiveness. I need cleansing. And there's nothing I can do to earn it on my own. There's nothing I could do to deserve it. I need, I need help. I need rescue. I need restoration. And I can't earn it. I can't buy it. I can't deserve it. I can only cry out in my need. For some of us, and for some of the folks you love and care about. Some of you have been praying for your one for a long time, and there's a barrier of pride. And sometimes I know there's some people I'm praying for in, in, in my life, and, and part of the painful prayer is, Father, do whatever it takes to bring them to yourself. And I know that that's probably gonna mean breaking their pride. And that may mean that they're gonna to have to walk through some difficult times before they get to a point where they're humbled enough to recognize their need. There was the barrier of pride. But notice Jesus' call to Peter. It was different than Andrew and John. He issues them, him a challenge. He gives him a challenge. He, he, the, the scripture says that, that Jesus looked at him. Jesus beheld him, some of your translations will say. It's a gaze. He fixed his eyes, almost this x-ray vision kind of look. And he gives this quick diagnosis. You are Simon. The root of that name means a hearer. Perhaps a man who was hearing the voice of his culture, uh, the doing everything he could to earn, earn the, the, the creed in his culture. See, that's who you were. I know you. 
I know your weaknesses. Yes, I know your strengths. I know your insecurities. I know your disappointments. You are Simon, the son of John. That's been your definition, your self-understanding. But you shall be called Cephas in the Aramaic. You shall be called Peter, this rock. You shall be a point of strength and stability. It is this challenge, Peter, let me take you. Let me remold you and change you. Peter, are you willing to have your world rocked? Are you willing for me to change you? Let me ask you, how far are you willing to go to allow God to change you into the person he wants you to be? Someone said it doesn't take much of a man to be a Christian, but it takes all of him there is. It takes all of you. All of you submitted fully to all of him. But see, here's the encouragement I want you to have this morning. Jesus sees us not just for who we are, but for who we can become in him. Not just who we are, Simon, son of John, that is no longer gonna be the thing that defines you, but you can become Peter. You can become this rock. You can become strength. When we meet Jesus, he doesn't just see us how we are, but he sees the potential within us. Jesus knows who and what we can become. And here's the thing. If you follow Peter's story, you realize it wasn't instantaneous, right? I mean, Peter was Peter, and sometimes it was three steps forward and two steps back, and I'm direct, and so I stick my foot in my mouth before I have a clue as to actually what I'm talking about. But Jesus shows amazing patience with him in helping him to grow into who he could be. Can I encourage somebody this morning? God's not finished with you yet. Jesus shows amazing patience in calling out the greatness, the potential that he has placed within us. But there's a third set of folks that he calls, a third individual in this case. We don't have a lot of information about him in this first chapter. Uh, his name is Philip. Verse 43, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. And there's not a lot of information there, but uh, taking that and some other things in the scripture, what, what we begin to know is that, uh, that his personality would have been a peace-centered person. In the ancient Greek uh, model, he would have been called a, a phlegmatic. In the disc profile, he would be an S, a supportive, a steady. This is a person that you would like to have as a friend. You'd love to have as a neighbor. You'd love to have on your team at work because they're supportive. They're steady. They don't cause a lot of drama. They do what they're supposed to do. They, they help kind of smooth over hurt feelings. They tend to be peace-centered individuals. Well, what is the evangelistic method that God used in his life? Interestingly enough, it's what we might call contact evangelism 
or even cold contact evangelism, if you will. It connects to the barrier. The barrier is that as far as we know, although he has some relationship, uh, at least being from the same region as Andrew and Peter, what, what we find is that it doesn't seem, at least in this verse, that there's anybody in his circle of influence, immediate circle of influence, who is able to point him to Jesus. And by the way, that's still true even in a country like ours, even in the Bible Belt. There are people that know about religion, that they maybe heard about God or Jesus. Uh, maybe they have some really skewed images of that based on little things they've seen flipping through the cable channels. But they really don't have anybody in their life, an obedient follower of Jesus Christ, who is praying for them and who will point them to Jesus. And that's why you and I have to be open to being that point of contact. So what did Jesus do? What was his call? He came and found Philip. Philip didn't have anybody naturally connected to him in his circles of influence who was going to point him to Jesus. He doesn't seem to have been perhaps in the sphere of John the Baptist or some of these other folks. Jesus comes and finds him. And the takeaway for you and I is be open. Be open to take part in God's divine appointments. Sometimes we, we, we say and we talk about a relationship and it is so important and friendship evangelism and, and being a good neighbor or a good coworker and all those things are hugely, hugely important. But understand, there are a lot of Phillips out there who don't have anybody in their immediate orbit who is praying for them, who loves them, who is seeking to point them to Jesus. And it may very well be that God will bring you across their orbit and it'll be for a short time. It'll be a contact. But in that moment, it's a divine appointment. It's an appointment that God has brought a follower of his across the path of someone that he is seeking. And he uses that moment. That's why we encourage you to do things like pray uh, for the server in the restaurant or, or just to be open, maybe just even to enter the day to say, Lord, just I'm available. Any, any way you want to use me to point somebody to you today, Father, I am available. That, that, that contact evangelism. But there's one other thing that I want you to see out of Philip's life, and that is that nice people need Jesus just as much as anyone else. Is it why a dominant personality might intimidate us? Sometimes we think about people like Philip and we would say, Are you, wow, he's the greatest neighbor. He is the nicest guy. He would give you the shirt off his back. He's always there to help. He's always there to do things. He, he's such a, such a, a peace-loving guy. He never causes waves, never causes problems in the office. In fact, is maybe you start to think about sharing Christ with him and you start thinking, I gotta tell you, I know Christians that aren't as nice as this guy is, right? Nice people need Jesus just as much as the most immoral, flagrant sinner that you can think of because we're all 
separated from a holy God. Niceness doesn't earn forgiveness. And maybe in your circles of influence, there's a nice person. You like them. You might love them. You may even think, I wish there were some Christians that acted more like this guy or this gal. But don't let their niceness be a barrier to you sharing the gospel. Everybody needs to hear about Jesus Christ because we all have the same fatal, eternal disease, sin, that separates us from a holy God. And so we, we share Christ. But there's one more in this opening set of disciples that he calls. And that's the, an individual by the name of Nathaniel. Let's pick up the narrative there in verse 44. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now there's a whole lot there, but let's, let's kind of follow our pattern here. Uh, who was Nathaniel? Well, his personality would be kind of internally centered. The Greeks would have uh, probably classified him as, as melancholy. In the disc profile, he would have been a high C, cautious, careful, curious. All of these things would have been part of, of his makeup. Uh, he would have been one who does a lot of internal processing along the way. And so what's the, what, what is the evangelistic method that uh, Philip used? It was invitational evangelism. He just invited him, hey, come and see. Come and see. And God still uses that today. Sometimes it's invitation to a church service. Sometimes it's, hey, check out this video. Sometimes it's, it may be an invitation to a, a, a Bible study or a men's outing or a women's outing or whatever it might be, a student ministry environment, uh, but it's just an invitation. Hey, come and see. Come and see. And some of your stories are like that. Somebody invited you to come and see. And it, it, that, that invitation became kind of that first step that led you to become a follower of Jesus Christ. But Nathaniel, like all of us, had barriers. And Nathaniel, some of his barriers would have been prejudice and doubts. Uh, sometimes when you're very cautious and careful and curious, uh, sometimes you carry with you a lot, of, a lot of doubts, a lot of prove it to me. And he had some built-in prejudice. First response, when he heard Jesus of Nazareth, he says, can anything good 
come out of Nazareth. I mean, that, that just doesn't line up. I mean, I kind of know what kind of area Nazareth is. Uh, uh, there's some Romans that are housed there and the reputation of that area. And I mean, really, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He has this, this kind of built-in prejudice. He's beginning to, to have these doubts and all these questions along the way. But notice Jesus' response. He didn't rebuke him. He looked into the man's soul and he saw in Nathaniel, even though he was filled with questions and maybe even doubts and prejudice, a forthright Israelite. And so to help Nathaniel overcome his sincere skepticism, Jesus offered just a small measure of supernatural evidence. Jesus says, Nathaniel, I know your heart. I know your heart. Nathaniel, I know your background. I know your background. I know that you are this Israelite. I know that you are even proud of that heritage and that history. I know your background and I know your character. I know your character. I know you're a person without guile. You just kind of, you put it out there. You ask those questions. You have doubts and questions and you're curious and you want the details. I know your character and I know your thoughts. I know your thoughts. I know what you were thinking when you were under that fig tree. I know your thoughts. And Nathaniel's response to that is immediate and enthusiastic. He, he confess, can, makes this confession of faith that reveals a remarkable depth of understanding. He, he understands the practical implications and the theological implications of Jesus' identity, that you are both the son of God and the king of Israel. I, I know now who you are. And here's one thing I want us to take away from Nathaniel. And maybe it's not clearly evident just in the quick reading of this text. And that is to never, 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 never underestimate the power of God's word. You say, Jeff, where in the world do you get that? See, earlier that day, Nathaniel had sought solitude in the shade of a fig tree. The Talmud, which is a collection of writings of Jewish scholars on practical living, encouraged men to, to take some time every day to, to get under a tree, because that would have been a cool spot, for reading, if they had access to a copy, reading and reflecting on the scriptures. And the Talmud encouraged men to do that under a tree at least once a day. And it's likely that when Philip came to Nathanael under that fig tree, that is exactly what Nathanael was doing. And isn't it smart? Did you notice what Philip said? He said, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. That would connect with somebody who had been studying and reading and meditating on those Old Testament scriptures, somebody who was looking for the Messiah. Please, please, please never underestimate the power of God's word to do a work in somebody's life. I know part of my own story, I, I've shared it with some of you before, it was just, uh, just as a freshman in college, I just, for whatever reason, felt like I had never read the Bible. And I, I got a 50-cent plan to start reading the Bible through in a year. I was so stupid, I didn't, I didn't even know where half the books were. I, 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 I didn't even look at that plan enough to know you, you read through the Old Testament once and the New Testament twice in that plan. I mean, that was a hunk of reading for me, right? But I started reading. 
the only Bible I had access to was a copy of the Living Bible, a Living Bible paraphrase. And God used that. God used that powerfully in my life. Never, ever, ever, ever underestimate the power of God's word. And it may be that somebody that you love and care about and you're praying for, maybe they're a Nathaniel or or have some of those tendencies, and maybe one of the greatest things to do is just to invite them, hey, let's read the Bible together. Let's just read it. Let's just read it and see what it says. What does it say about God? What does it say about us? What does it say about life? Never underestimate the power of God's word. But there's also a faith principle here in these last few verses. And that is to express a little faith. And when you do, you'll experience a greater faith. Did you see in verse 50, Nathaniel, because I said to you, I saw you under a fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Nathaniel, you haven't seen anything yet. Once you begin to walk in faith, once you begin to follow Jesus, you begin to experience greater things. But it begins with a step of faith. And the next step of faith opens up new opportunities and new insights and new understandings along the way. Express a little bit of faith. You don't have to have it all figured out. You don't have to become this super spiritual giant in a moment. But you take a step of faith. And when you express a little bit of faith, you begin to experience a greater and greater faith. It's like a muscle. The more you use the muscle, the stronger it gets. And in the same way as you exercise faith, you experience a greater faith. And then he closes with that word picture. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of of man. In Jesus' final words in this episode, he reveals his ultimate purpose for coming into the world. It's to be this bridge, this bridge, this great schism that sin's created between heaven and earth. It's a reference that Nathaniel would have immediately tuned into, what we would now call Genesis 28, 12, where Jacob had this dream of a ladder stretching from earth to heaven and the angels using it to move between these separated realms. And Jesus says, that dream is now a reality. In me, in the Son of Man, there is this now bridge, there is this thing that links these two realms that have been torn apart. And Nathaniel, as a son of Jacob, as a sinful man, as an earnest student of the law and the prophets, would have quickly understood. So let me leave us with two key takeaways. The first is Jesus knows us personally and he calls us personally. Not everybody is alike. We have different personalities and different life experiences and different things that have shaped us along the way. But God knows you personally and he calls you personally. And that should be an encouragement because sometimes we think, well, boy, I wish I was more like Peter. I I wish I was more like uh, this person or that person. No, God knows you personally and he calls you personally personally. But it's also a warning. Don't project your experience onto somebody else. Just because God used a certain way to bring you to Jesus doesn't mean that's the only way he brings people to Jesus. You all right? 
Give God the freedom to deal with other people individually and personally just as he did with you. He knows us personally and he calls us personally. And that ought to encourage us. But the second is, Jesus invites us, give your life to me and I will make you into what you have it in you to be. See, he knows you personally, but he also knows your potential. He knows who you can become in Jesus Christ. He knows the the purposes and plans that he has for your life and how to shape you to fulfill them. Michelangelo was perhaps the greatest sculptor in history. He knew something about releasing what was inside someone. Two of his more famous quotes. One, every block of stone, Michelangelo said, has a statue inside it. It's the task of the sculptor to discover it. And maybe sometimes we look at ourselves, we look maybe at somebody else and we just see a block. (laughs) We just see something that we feel like it just needs to be sitting out in a field or discarded. But the master sculptor knows what's inside and he knows how to release it. Second quote, Michelangelo describing one of his works is said to have said, I saw the angel in the marble and I carved until I set him free. When God looks at you and I, he knows us. He knows us personally. He knows our strengths, our weaknesses, our goals, our hopes, our dreams, our fears, our insecurities. He knows who we are and he knows who we can become. And he knows how to chip away and to call forth that which he has placed within us. The invitation to all of us from Jesus is to give your life to me and I will make you into what you have it in you to be. Let's pray to him together, please. Oh, Father, how we thank you that you are at work in each and every one of our lives, that you know us better than we know ourselves. You have fixed your love upon us. You have, have filled us with, with potential uh, that we, we can't even hardly imagine. And Father, that's not only true for us, but that's true of the people around us. Even the people that we find so weird and so different and and we're not able maybe to really relate or connect to as much. Father, help us to see with new eyes, with kingdom eyes, with your eyes. And so Father, I just pray right now with even in this room, even in socially distanced world that we're living in, you call us. You call us personally. You call us to be who you created us to be. And that's only possible in Jesus Christ. And yes, Father, even in this socially distanced world, you've called us to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ. Father, show us. Show us how we can be used by you to point other people to Jesus. We pray this together now in Christ Jesus' name, amen.